So everyone, this morning, uh, we're here to go after the big dog, all right? We're here to face off against race and racism and the church, and what a, what a tough issue. But we can't not. It's encoded into who we are as a congregation. When you look at our list of values that Pastor Dan set down uh, when he defined surrender together love, under love is reconciliation, And it's the reconciliation of the races as part of what it really means to be Christian. I couldn't get away from it either. I... When I first became a Christian, I joined a Christian's men's organization, and one of its pillars was the reconciliation of the races. And so I've always felt like that should be a part of whatever ministry that I personally get involved in. Um, This morning, I want to focus on what can we do? I don't know about you, but I've just spent a, a lot, a year, you know, living in a culture in heavy racial tension. And I feel like I hear one person say, you should definitely do this. And one person say, you should definitely not do that. And one person say, this would definitely uh, help. And this same say, say, if you do that, that'd be the worst thing you could ever do. And it just makes you feel so paralyzed that you just kind of throw up your hands and you don't want to do anything which is very satanically tempting for me as a white person because if I don't do anything, I'm doing pretty good so it kind of just goes on the same for me. And uh, that doesn't seem right, but it's very tempting. And so I want to focus this morning on what we can do. What can we do? What are we called to do? What am I called to do? What are you called to do as my brothers and sisters? What are we called to do as a church? And we probably won't get much bigger than that because that's, uh, that's our portion. So I, I want to say that in a message like this, uh, not everything that needs to be said gets said. And then uh, some stuff gets said that probably shouldn't be. So uh, you can help me out with that. I am very open to meeting with folks after. After messages, I don't know if you know, but sometimes people have me over so we can talk a little more about it. Uh, sometimes I meet with small groups. So, you know, because they want some clarifications or, or something. Some small groups invite me just to tell me what they think. They're done hearing what I thought. They want to tell me what they think. And that's just fine. I'm open to all of that. I do that sort of thing. I just wanted to let you know. That's part of being in the church family. It's not like you have to, you know, get the sermon and then you're just stuck with it. Um, it there can be more. And you can help it be better in the future if it, if it, if it went wrong. So uh, everything that I say today is guided by a certain scriptural understanding. Certain understanding of the New Testament. I want to reveal that right up front. Uh, Galatians chapter 3 is our example, verse 27 to 29. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. There is no longer Jew or Gentile. That was the racial distinction of their time. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. So when I read that verse and other verses like it scattered across the New Testament, I believe they are telling us about a truly new kingdom that God is bringing into the world. Something that's now going to go beyond the boundaries of Israel and become multicultural. As far as I know, it may be the first movement in history that decided to do that, that to go beyond a nation and become multicultural cultural, to create a new brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity where everyone will be united now, not by their language, not by their nation, but they'll be united by a common creed. They'll be united by a common belief and salvation through Christ Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection on the cross. 
And that new brotherhood would lay over and above all other types of nationality, language, race. All other types of brotherhood would be encompassed in that one. And I believe that very early Christianity began to affect the equality of races, the equality of social classes, and the equality of genders. And uh, I believe that that work continues even up to some of the things that you've seen talked about and shared on this stage this morning and in churches all over the world. The project continues. So everything that I say this morning is rooted in that understanding of Scripture. And so you would want to know that up front. So I want to go after two things. What can we do? And the first thing is what can we do about real deliberate discrimination. The first thing we have to do is admit that it happens. This is not something that ended in the 60s with the passing of the the Civil Rights Act. I can remember uh, when I was a kid, the day my dad came home and his workplace, they were interviewing for a welder and a man came for the interview, a black man. And he had the skills, he had the resume, he had the interview. And as he left, my dad said, I liked him. And his boss said, yeah, but do you want him living in your neighborhood? And so that black man did everything you are supposed to do to pull yourself up. He got the training. He got the education. He did the resume. He did the interview. And he still had to go home that night to his expected children. And as he walked in the door, shake his head. Because someone didn't want those kids at the bus stop with their kids. And that is not from the 60s. That's from my own lifetime. I can tell you about something that happened just a few years ago, just up the road here. A friend of mine and a bunch of his buddies were all playing ultimate Frisbee up in the, uh, uh, or maybe it was Frisbee golf, one of those Frisbee games. I'm so bad at sports, I don't even do Frisbee. Um, and so they're at Legacy Park and they were doing the Frisbee thing. Anyways, there's a, there's a uh, curfew at that park. They'd stayed too late. So a squad car rolled up, said, hey, guys, it's park curfew in this town. And uh, they said, okay. And they started packing their stuff up. But then the officer approached one of the players and said, I'm going to need to see your ID. He was the only black person playing Frisbee. And he said, why are you asking for my ID and you're not asking for everyone's ID? The officer stepped back, put his hand on his weapon and said, because I'm asking you for yours. My friend visited the chief of police the next day over that one. He said, I'm not saying it was a racist incident, but it sure does look like it. It does not look good. And the chief of police agreed. That just happened a few years ago, everyone, just up the road from where we sit. A few years ago, uh, after the Ferguson riots, my dad and I went down to our inner city partner, the Hope Center. They're having a community discussion. Um, The room was all pastors and church volunteers. It's about half black half white. Marvin Daniels, the executive director of the Hope Center, a black man, he's preached here a couple times. We loved him. Uh, He stood up. He said, before I begin tonight, I'd like to ask, in the last 12 months, how many of you have been pulled over? Uh, You weren't speeding. The officer didn't say you were speeding. Uh, There was nothing mechanically wrong with your car. The officer didn't say there was anything mechanically wrong with your car. And yet you were still asked to exit your vehicle and submit to a body search on the side of the road, maybe in the neighborhood where you live. How many of you has that happened to in the last 12 months? Every black pastor and church volunteer in the room raised their hand, including Marvin Daniels. And none of us white pastors. My wife was in New Orleans two weeks ago. 
riding the trolley. A white woman was ejected from the trolley. I, I don't know if she'd done something she wasn't supposed to do. As she got off the trolley, she turned and shouted out to everyone who was riding it. She was the only white person other than my wife and my wife's three friends. Everyone else was black. She shouted out, you're all a bunch of monkey faces. Now, that was last week in full view of the public. This stuff happens. These things are happening in our midst. What can you and I do about it? As Christians, first, uh, we must actively oppose overt racism. It's no longer enough for us to just be nice and loving and not participate in it. Uh, We have to do our part to move it off the scene. We must remove from power and influence those who perpetuate this sort of deliberate acts of racism. Um, uh, we can easily do it in the church. We have full, full authority to do it there. Uh, we can easily, uh, it's less easy, but we all have a vote, praise the Lord, for freedom. And uh, we, we should use it that way when we know someone is a deliberate and overt racist. Uh, a few years ago, I was wandering around here at Lakeland in the evening, and I recognized an elected official was here with us. So we were walking around talking. We were up on the mezzanine. Now, that particular night, uh, the uh, Pakistani community from here in Lee Summit was renting our building. They do it a lot for weddings and birthdays. And if you ever smell a really good food smell in here during the fall, it's them. Um, they'd never give me the leftovers. But anyways, they were all here. And we were up on the mezzanine. And we looked over the edge and I said, I had no idea there was such a large, because there were like over 100 people. I had no idea there was such a large Pakistani community here in Lee Summit. And this elected official sneered, I didn't know we had enough 7-Elevens to give them all jobs. He was not joking. I said, actually, these are very professional people. Some of them have even run for office here in our community. I would never vote for that guy if he was running in a jurisdiction where I vote. And if I was, I would make sure that story came out because we cannot have these types of people leading our communities. We can do this in our own homes. Around our, you know, I have uh, a lot of teenagers over my house. I have teenagers, they have friends. At our house, you have to be funny. It's sort of a character flaw if you're not. You know, like, son, you had that friend over, he wasn't funny, I'd rather him not be in the house again. Um, just kidding. But... Um, a little bit. So anyways, but, but sometimes when they t- tell jokes, you know, teenagers get in a roll, you can kind of tell from the lead in, this is going to be a racist joke. And so, yeah, I just stop them, right? I just, hey, we don't, we don't tell jokes like that in this house. I don't browbeat anybody or make a big fuss. I just kind of like, oh, I see where that's going. We're not, we don't do that here. Um, but he happily bounce on to the next thing. And that just uh, sets the tone and sends the message. Uh, We have to help walk people through racist systems. If we know the place where we work has characters like I'm describing there, the school where we teach, the school where we go, if we know this sort of thing, we've got to take people's hand, just like Ken said, and walk them through, just like Angie walked me through. The the one and only day in my life I had to face this. I showed up at the hospital uh, because I needed a surgery. And they had informed me the bill on the table was $250,000. I'm going to have trouble paying that. So they said, um, I should come speak to the hospital administrator. So I showed up at the hospital. I go to the desk. There's a couple of uh, black ladies there at the desk. And I came up, and um, it was just me. And, and, And finally, I said, I need to see some. Who are you? So I gave her my name. What are you here for? I'm here to see the financial administrator. Which one? Oh, I don't know. They just told me to show up at this time. She looked like she'd never used a computer before. I don't see you in here. Well, I have to speak to someone. Do I need to make an appointment? I don't do that. 
I said, I, I've got to get this resolved. I, my surgery's in like two weeks. Why don't you sit down over there and we'll see what happens? So I sit at the far end of the lobby. Next person after me is a black lady. Suddenly the desk comes to life. How are you, hon? What can we do for you? Okay, well, uh, yeah, you, here's your form. Here's, you just go down the hall and turn right. Thank you. Then a black man comes. Hello, sir, how can we help you? Okay, here's what you need. Here's this form. Here's this band. Here's this badge. You just go down the hall and in the elevator up the stairs, turn right. Third person after me, kind of an old white guy. He shuffles up there. The energy goes down again. What do you want? Well, I'm here to check. Are you sure it's this part? I don't think I can help you, sir. He finally walks away mystified. And that's when I realized I'm not getting through this place. I don't know what someone who looks like me did to her. But I'm going to pay for it today. I don't know if what I have is cancer yet. I don't know if I'm going to survive the surgery. I don't know if I'm going to leave my family with this tremendous debt. But I just want one of these questions answered, please, before I leave the day. And I'm not getting anywhere. And then Angie walked by. Angie was a short little black gal. She had her smock and her badge and her clipboard. And she said, sir, have you been helped? I said, I'm here to see a financial administrator. They told me to wait here. I've been here about an hour and 15 minutes. She said, sir, you follow me. And we got up, and as she was walking, she said, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a pastor. And she said, are you? And she turned around. And she told me the church that she went to. And then she walked me to the administrator's office. We got it worked out to something manageable. She came back after I was done. She said, Pastor, I'm going to give you my cell phone number. And when you show up here for your surgery, I want you to text me. I'm going to meet you here by the back door. I want you to pull around here to the back door, and I'm going to meet you there. And so two weeks later, I pulled up, and I texted Angie, and she met me by the back door. And she walked me to the first desk. She said, this is Pastor. She called me nothing but Pastor for the rest of the time. This is Pastor. He's going to be with us a couple of days. He needs this form, and he needs that. No, he doesn't need that one. Okay, you follow me. He took me to this check-in. This is Pastor. He's here to check in. This is his wife. We're going to put them in that waiting room that's a little closer to surgery area. Here's his bandage. And then she said, you know God's going to work all this out, don't you, Pastor? I said, I do. And then she prayed for me. And I thought, this is the one and only day in my life I've thought that the color of my skin might keep me from getting something I really, really needed. I wonder how often Angie faces that. In her life, in a year, in a month, I don't know. But I know that she chose to walk me through because she could tell I wasn't going to make it on my own. So we got to walk people through when we know that's what they face. Now, different than overt racism is what they call the disparity gap. If you're not familiar with this, this is when apparently equal opportunity exists, equal access exists, and then somehow things never turn out right. Um, You know, there's jobs, there's schools, but then when you look, still white folk doing the same job, on average, make more. Uh, White kids taking the same standardized tests, going to the same schools, tend to go farther, stay in them longer, score better than minority folk. What's up with that? And what can be done about that? So right now, uh, I think a lot of this has to do with generations of racism and generational curses, they call it in the Old Testament. 
Right now, I'm filling out a lot of job applications with my son. My wife and I can fill out job applications. We know what to put and what not to put. We know how to answer all the trick questions. When they ask for your weaknesses, we know how to say things that are actually strengths. Like, sometimes I work too hard. So we, we, uh, we, we, uh, we know all the things to say. We've gotten many jobs. Our kids can get many jobs. But what if I wasn't there and my wife had not worked and my wife's mother had not worked? Who tells him how to do this? This is not an easy thing. There's all sorts of weird blanks on a job application. How do you even know which ones to leave blank? I do. You do. But how would you know if no one had ever been able? How does it get into your family tree when it's not there? That's tough. But there's something, there's things we can do. There's things we can do. Now, first thing I want to say is we, the church, have a higher calling. And the first calling that I want to give us is that we need to be sensitive uh, that not all white people are achieving this gap. Okay, this uh, white boy grew up in a, for some years in a squalorous trailer park stricken with poverty. And it, no one was uh, high educated in that place. And when they heard that there was some sort of racial gap that was causing them to succeed, they got madder than a pit full of snakes. Because they weren't experiencing that. We had a hole in front of our kitchen sink. You could fall through. You'd wash the dishes. Like. They weren't experiencing that. So we the church uh, need to be sensitive to the fact that not everyone is experiencing poverty and education and race the same, we are, same way we are. Basically, the whole world ain't the suburbs. The suburbs is its own little kingdom. It's got its own little rules. I love it and I live here. But uh, my neighbor... When he's done mowing the grass, he leaves his mower in the front yard. There's almost nowhere in the world that you can get away with that. But we can't here. It's just different. And when you go to these tumble-down, one-stoplight town communities, they're not experiencing things the same way we are. And we have to be sensitive that people live in different circumstances. Okay, second thing. Second thing, I'm going to say something controversial, but then I'm going to flip it. So I'm going to say something that may make your temperature go up to 105 and your heart's pounding out of your chest, but please stay seated because then I'm going to flip it. All right, here it is. This will be controversial for some, but I believe it's true or I wouldn't say it. Uh, I do not have and you cannot put on me a legal responsibility to make sure all the outcomes come out the same. I am legally responsible to make sure there is equal access. I'm legally responsible to make sure if I know about what my dad's boss did all those years ago, um, you know, to report something like that and, and change that and not be a part of that. I'm legally responsible for that. But you can't make me legally responsible that then if that man is hired, that he shows up to work, does a good job, stays in the job, gets promoted. You can't make me responsible for that outcome legally. You can't make me legally responsible that his children, uh, once in the school, do well. And I can't even force my own children to do well in the school I'm sending them to, much less somebody else's child. You know that has to be true. But, here's the but. Here's the but. As the church, we have this higher calling to share grace. Because Jesus loved us and lifted us up, this kid from the trailer park in front of you today is living at a much higher level than my childhood script would have told you this story was going. And it's all because of things Jesus Christ has done for me and brought into my life and the people and the experiences. 
And now I do live a life abundant. And I want to share that with anyone else who's not experiencing that. If there's some mysterious gap or disparity, I want to, out of joy and gratitude for what God's given to me, share that with someone else. So what can we do about racial disparity? Here's what we can do. You and I could do today. Ask God to show you your part in ending this disparity gap. And when God reveals it to you, shows it to you, take those opportunities. I was talking with uh, Chris, our worship director, earlier this week about this message. He said, at our house, we talk about what's your portion. You've got the whole world full of problems, but what is your portion? What's the part God carves off to you? It's not all of it, and it's not none of it. Some of it. And what is your portion? So take those opportunities, and therefore surrender your guilt that you can't fix it all. You've got to give that up to God, that you, you can't fix it all. Also, don't let the foolishness that we see going on in the political sphere cause us to become cold-hearted and not want to do anything. Let's be honest, we've all heard it. Politicians say crazy things. Crazy things that just make you so darn mad. But we don't need them for much, okay? We need the lawmaking stuff when the time comes. But we don't actually need them for much of what we're talking about today. They can chase their tails and try to whip us into a frenzy every four years if that's what the game is. But we can still do most of what we're saying here this morning. So don't let your heart grow cold because of the political foolishness that's going on in the world right now. Some of you gave up lucrative careers by choice to work with the poor and with the traumatized. You answered God's call to your portion. And the difference you make, although you feel like it's just a drop in the sea, is the difference God called you to make and you have done it. Some of you kept your lucrative careers, but you gave a good portion of that income to things like the One Life Financial Challenge. Uh, you gave us so much giving in 2019 that it exceeded our budget and we just saved it back. Well, now those two income sources are being used to complete the Eastland House. That uh, house will be used for ministry. It will be a gift to our inner city partners, the Hope Center. The Hope Center is doing something about this gap. When we first started working in the Hope Center, there was nothing in that neighborhood except the most homicides in a four-block area in Kansas City. Today... There's a medical clinic started by the Hope Center. There's a charter school started by the Hope Center. There is a leadership training and Bible studies for kids. And now other businesses are starting. There's a grocery store now in the, in the neighborhood. Things are starting to move in because things go on there that are good. And you've all been a part of that. And it took all of you. It took those of you who put aside the money to serve in those places. It took those of you who kept at the hard work and gave the money to fund the folks serving it. It took all of you. You've answered your portion. If you tutor a minority person on how to fill out a tax return, fill out a job application, uh, walk through buying of the first home, you are breaking a generational curse. You are setting something in motion that can carry on and alter a family tree, eventually entire neighborhoods and cities. Others of you have hired minority people for your businesses, even though they may not have sent you the most polished resume in the world. You're helping get things going. Some of them you could keep. Some of them you had to let go. That's all part of the story. But you took the chance. You answered the call and the portion that God gave to you. Well done. God is not asking any one of you or me to save the whole world. 
He's not asking Lakeland to end racism everywhere by ourselves. He's just asking each one of us to step up to the call that he's given us and take advantage of the opportunities that he's set before us, even if it's just to be a friend and love someone in a moment when you see they're in trouble, they're having a bad day. In fact, on that trolley, all the black people could tell my wife was so embarrassed by her behavior, they comforted her. (laughs) They said, that lady obviously has something... terrible going on in her life and her mind is twisted and hurting. It may not seem like enough given the problems that we face, but this is all any of you could be asked to do. What can God ask you to do but the part that he shows you and the part that he gives to you? So let us actively oppose overt Racism, let's remove people from power and positions if we know that's how they operate. Shut down the jokes and the snide remarks. Um, Walk people through when we know they need help getting through systems that work with overt racism. Uh, For the disparity gap, ask God to show you your role in helping that gap to close. Take the opportunity he gives you. Surrender your guilt to him that it's not going to fix it all. Maybe not even in your lifetime, but you do your part. And don't let the foolishness of the political fighting that goes on cause you to throw up your hands and and want to do nothing. And let's do all of this, not out of an obligation, but out of a joy. A joy and a calling from God out of gratefulness for what he's done for us. And what else could we do? But share the abundance he's poured out on us with those around us. Let us pray. Father, we pray this morning. For the knowledge of your will and the power to carry that out. Lord, if anything was said in this message that was not part of your calling, I pray your spirit of discernment would help everyone here just uh, filter that out. Down to uh, whatever truth there is to be found. We pray for the brother and sisterhood of all people that you have come to make. We thank you for Christ Jesus, the only one who could unite us in that way. Someday every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.